You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Hebrews chapter 2. We've been in Hebrews now for the last couple of weeks and we're working through it chapter by chapter. And so I told you that, you know, I kind of told you up front, we're not going to cover everything in each chapter. We're not going to cover everything extensively in each chapter. And so it does leave some room for you to study on your own. And so, um, I don't necessarily typically give you guys the prompting to study in advance what I'm about to teach, um, except for when we're doing it chapter by chapter, because I do feel like uh, it's important for you to kind of be reading and thinking and preparing because we're not going to cover everything, and your own personal study can kind of give you some of the context for some of the things that maybe we don't go into as in depth. And so, you know, just kind of telling you up front, all of our family worship questions for the for the study of Hebrews is going to be for you to read the next chapter and kind of contemplate and reflect and meditate upon that chapter in anticipation of what we're going to be learning together on Sunday mornings. And so um, the last two weeks, we've seen an introduction to Hebrews where we basically just kind of covered the overall theme of of what Hebrews is about, right? That our study of Hebrews is going to help us see Jesus as being a superior, uh, a superior being to all things found in this life, and that we have great reason to hold fast to him while encouraging others to do the same when we're tempted to abandon our faith and when we're tempted to, uh, to, to kind of walk away because of persecution or, or trials and difficulties, right? That, that Jesus is greater than everything in this world, and, and we hold fast to him when we're tempted to sin or when we're enduring persecution, enduring trials. That from a theological standpoint, the author wants to show that Christianity is better than specifically Judaism, but all other religions as well. And then practically to encourage believers to not apostatize or to not abandon the faith and instead press on towards maturity. And then last week we saw specifically in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is better than prophets, that he's better than angels, that he's the climactic conclusion to God's progressive revelation about himself and his plan, giving us great cause to trust and follow him with our lives. So in chapter 1 we saw there's been other prophets that have shared messages about God. Even angels have been used by God to communicate truth about him. And all that truth is right, all of it is good, none of it is bad, none of it is wrong. So when we say Jesus is better, we're not trying to diminish what has previously uh, come to us in the past. We're simply saying that Jesus kind of fulfills or brings to climax or conclusion some of the things that he had revealed about himself previously. So God has been progressively telling man more and more about himself, and then he brings that to a a full conclusion through Jesus Christ. And so uh, Jesus is that climactic conclusion. He's better than prophets. He's better than angels. And so the people that were reading this letter were being tempted to go back to the Old Testament system solely, right? Like we're not in the New Testament saying that we abandon the Old Testament. We're saying that we understand the Old Testament in light of Jesus. The people reading Hebrews were being tempted to walk away from Jesus and go back to the Old Testament. And the author's trying to show that that makes zero sense because Jesus is the fulfillment of what you would be going back to. So you don't want to step back to something that has greater fulfillment now in Jesus. And so that's the whole, that's the whole thrust of chapter one is that, man, he's setting the stage for what we see in chapter two. Don't drift, don't go back to something that's old now, that's been greater fulfilled through Jesus Christ. All right, so that brings us to chapter two. Um, Let's read in verse one. We're gonna read it again. I know we've read it already this morning, but I wanna read it again for those that weren't in here with us just to set the stage for what we're gonna talk about today. 
Verse 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape it if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children of God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he has to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Our summary sentence for today. Rather than neglecting our salvation and drifting from the faith, we must glorify God with our lives based on his word which is our purpose for existence by seeking the all-sufficient help of Jesus. Rather than neglecting our salvation and drifting from the faith, we must glorify God with our lives based on his word, which is our purpose for existence by seeking the all-sufficient help of Jesus. For our kids, we avoid drifting away, or actually that should be on the next slide, but you can go ahead and fill it in. We avoid drifting away from Jesus by staying close to him through his word. We avoid drifting away from Jesus by staying close to him through his word. All right, so the th- kind of the theme in this chapter, it's the first warning passage for us in, um, in the book of Hebrews. The idea of not neglecting salvation, not neglecting what we have heard from Jesus, instead clinging very tightly to it, all right? Um, not drifting from it. And, and, and to what that looks like is that we're living our life in such a way where we're bringing glory to God with our lives, that that's being channeled to us or we're, we're receiving instruction on how to do that through his word. And, and that's the purpose of our existence is to live in such a way where we bring glory to God with our lives. And because of the sin factor, we need the all-sufficient help of Jesus to do that. And we're gonna see that at the end of the chapter where Jesus as our high priest understands what we go through, offers us um, sufficient help in the midst of temptation. Right? So when we're tempted to sin, we're tempted to fall away, we're tempted to drift, Jesus offers us the necessary help for that not to happen in our life. <clears throat> As way of introduction, Jesus is better than angels. We've seen that in chapter one. We saw it specifically in the fact that he's better than angels through his deity. 
All right, we talked about his superiority to angels because of his deity, that he's different than angels. He's superior to angels because he is God. And then in chapter two, we're seeing his superior, superiority to angels through his humanity. Okay, so when we think of the son, Jesus, the son of God, we're thinking in terms of his deity and his humanity. He's 100% both, right? And so we talk in terms of Jesus being both God and man and both establish him as a superior presence to angels. All right, so in chapter two, we're seeing his superiority through his humanity because when the author even talks about who man is, right? So kind of in the middle of the chapter, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The author kind of goes on to talk about that passage and he starts to interwork Jesus into our understanding of that passage. So that passage partly is talking about mankind in general, particularly maybe even the first Adam back in the garden and what God originally planned for mankind before sin. Then Jesus kind of gets infused into that passage as the son of man, as the ultimate man, as the perfect man, kind of the fulfillment of what God intended for all of mankind. Okay, so Jesus is the better man than Adam. He's the, he's the better, he's the second Adam, he's the final Adam. Um, he, he's better in his humanity because he does gain dominion over creation, right? Like we were supposed to have dominion over creation, but we kind of forfeited that through sin. Now we're trying to kind of regain that, but part of the curse is what? That creation doesn't submit to us like it's supposed to, right? Like we have to work harder because of sin, because the weeds spring up and make work harder, right? Jesus has dominion over creation. Jesus brings men to glory, right? God, God the Father was glorified by Jesus throughout his entire life. We fail in that because of our sin. Even in salvation, we're trying to do that, but we fail often. Jesus doesn't fail at all in that. Jesus actually carries us through sanctification to being able to bring glory to God. Jesus comes in his humanity and disarms Satan, right? Satan tempts Jesus, and Jesus wins the victory over Satan, whereas we, we gave in to Satan. We gave in to the temptation. We failed in that battle. Jesus wins the battle. So Jesus is the better man, and he's certainly superior to angels in his humanity because no angel ever did any of this, right? No angel can claim that he's gained dominion over creation. No angel can claim that, that he has ultimately brought glory to God in the midst of temptation like this, right? So Jesus is better in his humanity than any angel ever could be. Now, in chapter two, again, by way of introduction, this is the first warning passage in Hebrews, and there's gonna be several more to come. But the first warning passage is found here in verse one. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs, wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, All right? This warning passage ultimately tells us to pay attention so that we don't drift. Now, there's debate as to whether or not it's actually possible for a Christian to do any of the things that they are warned not to do, okay? And John MacArthur would even say that there's different there's different audiences that are hearing this message, and this is specifically meant for those who 
are kind of teetering as to whether or not they're going to become a Christian or not. Like they've, they've gained an intellectual understanding of the gospel, that they know it, that there's no questions really left to be answered, but they haven't fully gone in and accepted Christ and begun to follow him. And so the warning here is, you have what you need, take the next step, commit your life, be baptized, follow Jesus, don't drift away from that. I would say that, that ultimately this message is being given in a context like this where you've got Christians and non-Christians. And those that are Christians are meant to hear this message and they're meant to not drift away from their salvation. Ultimately, it's really not possible because of the Holy Spirit indwelling us and sealing us until the day of redemption. But one of the ways that the Holy Spirit seals us until the day of redemption is he gives us appropriate warnings so that we continue to persevere. Others that may be sitting here this morning that are not believers will hear this and will drift away from what they've heard today and they will show themselves to not be believers, okay? So ultimately, those that drift are those who reject God's word by neglecting God's word and ultimately show themselves to never have really been all in for Jesus. Those who are truly believers hear this warning of, of, of not neglecting salvation, not drifting away. They yield to that warning and they keep persevering as the book of Hebrews calls us to. Okay, so it's the first warning passage. Ultimately, what's the challenge for these people? They're being challenged not to drift back to Judaism. Okay, that's the context of the message. The context of the warning is don't go back to the Old Testament because the Old Testament is now better because of the New Testament, because of Jesus. Don't go back to just the Old Testament. You're missing out on what the Old Testament is if you detach it from the New Testament. Okay, so, so stick with the New Testament. It gives light and understanding to the Old Testament. Don't drift back to the Old Testament solely, okay? For us, I don't know that that's necessarily a temptation for us, right? Instead, the temptation for us is to go back to our old way of life. Most of us weren't saved out of Judaism, but we were saved out of this world, okay? We were saved out of, uh, out of a culture, out of a system, out of, an, out of an other way of life that we're tempted to potentially drift back into, Okay, so the warning may be a different warning for us in the sense of what are we tempted to drift back to, but the warning is consistent in that we don't drift away from Jesus. We don't drift away from Christianity, okay? The Old Testament passages that are quoted here, we're not going to spend as much time maybe as we could on them, and so I'm going to kind of give you these, these, this information up front before we delve into the, the chapter, okay? The Old Testament passages that are quoted are heavy messianic passages, which means they had a fulfillment at the time. They were talking about something specifically at the time, but they also in some ways pointed towards Jesus. They foreshadowed the coming of Jesus. So all these Old Testament passages that you see the author quoting here, he's taking something in the Old Testament and he's giving messianic meaning to it by using it in the context of Jesus, okay? The passages that are quoted come from Psalm chapter eight, Psalm chapter 22, and then two of them come from Isaiah eight. All right, Psalm 8, Psalm 22, and then Isaiah chapter 8. And all three, and the purpose of all three of them being used, it's to link Jesus to believers. It's to show the, the commonality that Jesus shares in his humanity with human beings, right? So I told you the Psalm 8 passage, that it, it kind of starts off talking about mankind, and before he's done talking about it, He's really talking about Jesus as kind of being the fulfillment of what mankind's supposed to be. 
You skip down and then he kind of rapid fires three of these, one from Psalm 22 and then one, uh, two of them from Isaiah 8. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Okay, so Jesus is basically putting himself in the context of something that Isaiah said, and he's saying, this is true of me too, that I consider other believers my brothers, and, and I see my job as giving glory to the Father just like it's a Christian's job to do that. He even says in the midst of the congregation, and I told you he is quoting not from the Old Testament Hebrew, but from the Old Testament Greek version. And the Greek version of the Old Testament here, this word congregation, it's the New Testament word for church. It's the same word that's used in the New Testament for the gathering of the local body. So Jesus is saying, man, I see my job just like as as a Christian would see their job. That's to bring glory and honor to the Father, okay? I will put my trust in him. Man, we see Jesus throughout his humanity doing what? being very submitted to the Father and being very guided and and reliant upon his Father for all that he does, right? So he's echoing what we should be doing and that's putting our trust in him. And then behold, I am the children of God. uh, Behold, I am the children God has given me. Again, kind of a, a commonality with human beings because Jesus in his humanity wasn't just pretending to be a human. Man, we believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Not that he showed up and looked like a human like angels do sometimes, right? Like angels give off an appearance of looking very human, but they're spiritual beings. Jesus took on human flesh and he didn't fake it, right? Like the incarnational doctrine means that Jesus really became human. He didn't just look human. He didn't pretend to be human. He didn't dress up like a human. He became man without forfeiting his deity, right? The God man, 100% God, 100% man, and he doesn't fake it. And Jesus, and the author is trying to show us this through these Old Testament passages, that Jesus is very much like us. By taking on humanity, he becomes very much like us, which is so important for what we see at the end of chapter two, is it makes him an appropriate sacrifice. It makes him an appropriate priest because he wasn't faking it, because he really did become human. Jesus being made perfect in this passage, right? Like it talks about him being made perfect, which seems really heretical to even have to say that, that that in some way Jesus is having to add to himself, right? But the idea here is that Jesus being made perfect is really him becoming qualified to serve in the capacities that are described here, okay? So it's not that Jesus wasn't perfect before he became a human being. It wasn't that he was insufficient. It's that he really proved his ability to function in the way that he's functioning in Hebrews, right? When we see in uh, Philippians chapter two, we we see the the incarnation passage of Jesus humbling himself and becoming a human being, right? And he becomes obedient and he becomes obedient to the point of death, right? Like we see like this, this stage of Jesus and his obedience and he's not even viewed as being fully obedient until he really carries out in time Jesus's plan for the son and that's to become the sacrificial lamb for his people. So when we talk about Jesus being perfected in this passage, we're not saying that he was unperfect or imperfect before. We're simply saying that in real time, From the human perspective, Jesus qualifies himself to be our sacrifice by coming and living perfectly for 33 years. He qualifies himself to be the propitiation for our sins by getting on the cross and shedding his blood for us. Okay, so he's not not becoming perfect. He's showing himself to be qualified to do the things that he does. Okay, he becomes like us for us. Okay, 
Um, let's jump in now, and I want to hit the things that I think are, are extremely important for us to walk away from chapter 2 with. And again, we're going we're gonna to miss some stuff. We're going to leave some stuff out, which gives you a lot of leeway to go back and continue studying this chapter and to continue to study chapter 3 as we move into next week. All right, let's start with number one. Understand the urgency of the message. Understand the urgency of the message. For our kids, Jesus' message is really important for us. It's really important. Chapter two starts off with that word, therefore. Most of you that have done any type of classes on Bible study know that you always wanna ask what's it there for, right? So in light of everything that we talked about in chapter one, Jesus is better than angels. His message is better than the Old Testament message because it brings fulfillment to it. Therefore, because of everything we talked about last week, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard now through the message of Jesus, okay? So there's an urgency to the message of Jesus, Number one, because the message has great value. It has great value. The way that the author describes the message of Jesus puts great value upon it and really gives us every reason to believe it. Okay, where do we see the value in it? Well, we see it in verse three, where it says, it was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. And then God bore witness of it by a variety of ways, signs, wonders, and miracles. So first of all, its value is seen in the fact that it's delivered or it's proclaimed by Jesus, who is the greatest messenger, okay? So we're saying that Jesus's message better than the Old Testament message because it fulfills the Old Testament message. We say Jesus is the better messenger than the prophets and the angels because he's God's son, okay? And, and what we have to keep in mind is that there is no greater message or greater messenger to come in the future. Like we're never gonna find ourselves in the same context as the Hebrews where somebody's telling us, hey, don't drift back to the New Testament. You need, you need to really camp out here in the new New Testament. Right? Like we're not getting that. Okay, there's not a newer covenant to come. Jesus brings great fulfillment to it. He's the greatest messenger with the greatest message. There's nothing greater to come beyond what's been given to us. Okay, so... It's delivered and proclaimed by the greatest messenger, but then secondly, it was confirmed and passed on by eyewitnesses who were close to Jesus, okay? This isn't like Joseph Smith who shows up and claims to have received a message from God that nobody else got to. Like there were no eyewitnesses to Joseph Smith's experience. He's simply trying to pass on a new New Testament, right? With no other eyewitnesses for it. What we have in Christianity is not just that this comes from Jesus who claimed to be God's son, is that we have eyewitnesses to the accounts that are contained for us in the New Testament, right? When, when Paul talks about the, the proof of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, right? Like he begins to document people who were still alive at the time of writing that saw the resurrected Jesus, right? Upwards of 500 people at one time saw him back from the dead. And, and, and the, the readers of 1 Corinthians are invited, hey, go talk to these people. Like, like we have a list of them you can go talk to if you doubt our testimony about the resurrected Jesus. So not only does Jesus bring the message, it, it comes confirmed, validated, and passed on by eyewitnesses. And then it's also validated and authenticated by supernatural power, right? It wasn't just words that were being passed on. There were great things that the Holy Spirit was doing in the midst of what happens in the book of Acts, right? That's, that's the, the proclamation of the gospel. The message of Jesus and his resurrection begins to grow and expand to the ends of the earth and churches are popping up everywhere. 
and, and, and supernatural things are happening in the midst of them, things that can't be explained, right? So Jesus brings the message, eyewitnesses confirm it, and then the signs and the miracles validate validate the truthfulness of it. It's a powerful message. It's a message of great value because of these things. And then secondly, drifting from it presents a great danger. Drifting from this presents a great danger. And the argument that's given to us here is kind of a lesser to greater argument. The author is basically showing us there's greater judgment for neglecting a greater message. Look what he says about the other message. For since the message declared by angels, that's the Old Testament, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So the author is reminding his readers, look, the Old Testament message that you love so much, it had things that you were supposed to do, and then punishment if you did not do those things right? Transgressions would be things that were done against God's word. Disobedience would be what we would call sins of omission, things that were not done that we were told to do. So transgressions is the idea that we do things that we're not supposed to do. Disobedience being the idea that we're not doing things that we're supposed to do. So kind of both sides there, the sins of commission, sins of omission. And the author says that the the law basically said, if you do these things, this is what happens. And it was reliable, and that's actually what did happen. So he's saying now that you have a greater message with a greater judgment, how can we drift away from it knowing that it will come to pass? How can we neglect this? Okay? Um, What's this idea of drifting mean? It's a nautical term, and and it's, it's really describing a situation where a ship breaks free from its anchor. Right? Like it's anchored in. It's positioned in such a way that it, that, it, that it starts to drift because the anchor is released, maybe unbeknownst to the person who's on the ship, right? Maybe you've been to the beach before and you're, and you're playing in the ocean. You're not too far out, but you're kind of playing and, and just kind of floating and sitting around and talking. And after a few minutes, you kind of look up and you're like, oh, that doesn't look like my family in front of me, right? Like, like, that, that's not, like that's not our stuff. That's not the people that I love. And you look down the beach and you're like, whoa, like, why am I way down here, right? Like you don't realize that there's kind of an undercurrent that's kind of pushing you down the beach, but you're kind of, you're kind of unfamiliar with it. Like you don't even recognize it. You don't realize it. You're just kind of drifting away from where you were, not really paying attention, just kind of going about your business. But you look up and you're like, whoa, like I've really moved a significant amount of uh, space. That's the picture here. The picture is you were, you were anchored in one way, and then you kind of loosened the anchor, maybe not even realizing it, and you drifted, and you've moved, you've moved further than you ever intended to, right? Maybe you've been around people who have talked about what they used to even look like, right? Like uh, one of the football coaches recently was talking about his playing days in high school, and he's, he's about 350, 360 now, and he was talking about his playing weight back in high school was like 190. It's like he, he showed us a picture of what he looked like in high school, Right? And he was kind of talking about, he's like, I don't know really what happened. Like, I don't know, like, why, why I look the way that I do today. It didn't happen overnight, though, right? Like, like it's a steady progression. And all of us could do this. All of us could pull up high school pictures or, or pictures where we, where we looked different than we do now. And most of us couldn't really describe 
what did that actually look like for us to get to what we look like today? Like it was kind of a, kind of a steady drift. Like we kind of did some things or we didn't do some things that led to what we look like today. That's the idea of this word drifting. Um, it's not a, a um, opposition or a rejection of something, but it's more of a neglecting of something. It's ignoring something that in the context here is very important. Matthew chapter 22, verse five, this same word is used. And it's used in the parable where Jesus is talking about sending out the invitation to the wedding feast and people neglecting it, ignoring the invitation. It says that they were too busy with their farms and with other things to pay attention to the invitation and to show up at the wedding. In 1 Timothy 4, 14, Timothy is challenged not to neglect the things that have been invested into him to not ignore those things, to not neglect those things, okay? So the idea here is that other things become a priority and it's not necessarily an intentional thing or a willful thing, but it results from spiritual things sometimes becoming maybe too familiar to us or life becoming too busy. I want you to think about that for a second. Have you ever been in danger of spiritual things, church-related things, Christian-related things becoming so familiar that maybe they become almost boring to you. Like, maybe at one point in your life you were, you were fired up about this, you were, you were passionate about this, but, but you're at a point right now where you're just kind of going with it, but, but, it, but it's not as, it doesn't feel as important or, or it doesn't seem as special as maybe it used to. People that, that are in danger of drifting in this context today I think are definitely people who allow life to become so busy that the spiritual, thing, spiritual things become less important. Things that used to be important stop being so important. And in the Old Testament, God gave the children of Israel some guidance in making sure that they never got to that point. Now, whether they fulfilled it or not, whether they did it or not, was kind of left in their ball court. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates." Man, in the Old Testament, God was very concerned about his people neglecting his word, drifting from his word, prioritizing other things above his word. And so his command was basically, man, don't ever let this stop being a part of your conversation in your house. Don't ever drift in such a way where your kids don't hear you discussing spiritual things. Man, it's got to stay at the forefront of your family or else you are going to drift. It's not like you come home and say, Honey, kids, like, we're done with that stuff. We're done with Christianity. We're going to stop doing a lot of this stuff. It's more of a gradual drift, potentially, where, where some things start to become less important. Life gets busy. The church thing kind of seems, yeah, we'll keep doing it, but, but I'm not really sure why we're still doing it kind of a thing. The author cautions us against this type of mindset because there's a greater judgment for neglecting a greater message. And there's really no other way of escape. There's really no other way of escape. It says, how can we escape such a great salvation if, if we neglect it, if we drift away from it? There is no other way of escape. The New Testament, and get this, the New Testament nowhere teaches that an initial acceptance of salvation is sufficient without perseverance in the faith. 
That's just absent from the New Testament. You don't get anything in the New Testament that says, make a decision and then perseverance doesn't matter, right? Like, like it never says that you can make a decision and then drift as far away as you want to and, and the decisions still matter. Man, it says that when you make a true decision, you persevere until the very end. To the point that I would say true Christians really can't drift too far or for too long and really be a Christian. And if you're the exception to the rule, kind of like what we said in Revelation, burden is on you to prove that. Because what I see in the New Testament is that Christians don't drift for too far and for too long. If they drift at all, they quickly come back. And the Holy Spirit convicts them. The Holy Spirit moves inside of them. That Holy Spirit that's sealing them until the day of redemption won't let them get too far before they come back. I even put in my notes, I don't think, get this, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to read the Bible regularly, yield to what you read, and that's the key part, yield to what you read and still drift. I, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to read the Bible regularly, yield to it, to what it says, like do what it says, and still find a way to drift away. Because what the author is saying is, if we pay much closer attention to what we heard, we won't drift away from it. You say, but Adam, like there's, there's pastors all the time that do this. I mean, they're reading the Bible, they're teaching the Bible, they're studying the Bible, and they're drifting. Right? Like we hear all the time about pastors being in affairs. Man, I would be curious to know, though, what changes in their personal preparation and study time from the time in their life where they're not drifting to the times where they are. It'd be an interesting study to look at what the sermon prep and what the, even the sermons looked like from the time when they weren't drifting to the time when they were. And there's signs, there's indicators that things are changing. Man, I remember from my dad specifically, when, when he was at what I would maybe describe his spiritual height. Now, I remember that guy was up early every single morning in the Word of God. And he was studying the Word. I remember we got up at 5 a.m., me and him, together to go work out. And he had been up since probably 3.45 studying in the Word before we even left to go work out, right? Um, I remember seeing things that, that made me think, this, this, this isn't my dad. I remember seeing the time in the Word decrease dramatically. I remember seeing the music that I found on his, com- on his computer drastically different than what it had previously been. I remember his screensavers being drastically different than what they had been previously. Things that weren't tolerated were all of a sudden okay now. Things that, that you would have raised an eyebrow and said, you know, why, why is your dad doing that? Like all of a sudden became commonplace. Man, I, I could show you signs of where my dad was drifting into the affair. Like things that, that, that were indicators. I'm just telling you, I don't think if you spend time in God's word faithfully, yield to it, like hear it, not just with your ears, but with your spiritual ears and you're doing it, I don't think you drift. I, I, I think the, the safety net here and what the author is saying is be in the word, yield to it, and you're not gonna drift in your faith. So the implication, pay attention to God through his word by seeking to know him and obey him through your own personal study and through the public reading and teaching of scripture in the local church. Not to become a smart theologian, but to avoid drifting away. 
And again, this is all about how you're hearing the word of God. It's how you're hearing it. Because there's people in seminary that are drifting from the faith, that, that are studying God's word on a much deeper level than maybe we ever will. The idea here and what the author is saying is that if we pay attention to God through his word and we're doing it in such a way where we're trying to know him and obey him, And the ways that we see that being available to us is through our own studies. But then also, man, the, the, the New Testament's very clear that what makes a church a church is its public proclamation, teaching of the word. That we won't drift away if we're motivated by these reasons. Now, now here's the thing. It's not, I'm not saying that I, that, I can, that I can't sin if I'm in the word regularly and trying to be obedient to it. I'm not even saying that I don't potentially um, become unfaithful to my wife by doing this, right? Like, like, I'm not exempt. I'm not exempt from temptation and giving into temptation. What I'm telling you is I can't give into temptation. I can't be unfaithful to my wife and keep being unfaithful to my wife, coming back to the word of God, reading the word and seeking to yield myself to it and then continually going back to that thing. Man, the Holy Spirit's gonna convict me, right? Like I, I can't be obedient to God's word and keep pursuing something that's causing me to drift away. The author of Hebrews says, pay attention to the message. And if you're yielding yourself to it, seeking to be obedient to it, not just to puff up your knowledge, but to, to really know God, then you're not going to drift away. We seek to provide those environments here within our church at a big level to a small level in hopes that we do everything possible to create environments where the drifting is minimal right? Like we have big gatherings for our church on Sundays. Then we have smaller gatherings with our C groups that are mixed with male and female. And then we have even smaller gatherings with our accountability groups. Why? Because the goal is to be as small as possible in the accountability piece so that if somebody starts to drift, we catch it as early as possible. I can tell you, if we did away with accountability groups and we did away with C groups and we just did Sunday gatherings, it would take us far longer to figure out somebody was drifting and the damage would be far greater in trying to fix it before it would really become known in this type of setting. We can catch things at the accountability level that would take maybe weeks or months to really be seen at the Sunday morning level and head it off and potentially fix it before it caused somebody to drift so far away that they're not coming back, right? Like that's why we've kind of structured it this way. Pay attention to God through his word and you don't drift away. Secondly, recognize the purpose of your existence. Okay, so we move into verse five. It says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For our kids, we exist to live for God's glory. 
So that's number one for our adults. God's plan is for man to bring him glory. That's, what, that's, what it's, that's what's told to us here. We, we're created by him and we're created for him. And, and we're told that man was important to God because, because he made him in such a way to be crowned with glory and honor and to put everything in subjection under his feet, but that that did not happen because of sin, right? So sin enters into the world. God had set up Adam and Eve to be the, the crowning jewel of his creation, and, and everything in the world was going to come underneath them. They were going to be his vice regents in the Garden of Eden, and they step away. They drift. Like, they drift in some way to where they're open to the temptation of Satan. They give into it, and, and they're not doing what God intended for them to do. So Jesus shows up and works to fix that. But we're created by God, for God. We're created lower than the angels now, but the plan was to crown us with glory and honor later. And we certainly see that Jesus kind of modeling that in the fact that he lowers himself below the angels to come as a human being and, and puts himself in a human body. And then we see the exaltation of Jesus back to heaven in Philippians where, where God gives him a name that's above every name and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But part of the purpose of why we're created is to bring glory to God. And, and God is working everything now to make sure that that happens because we failed in our attempts to do that. So number two, his plan is for us to give him glory. And now his plan is to set man free from sin and death so that we can because we failed in our attempts to do it. He says now that he's bringing us to glory, bringing many sons to glory. And God the Father has provided a founder of our salvation who's been made perfect through suffering, who sanctifies us. And he does it through what's described at the end of chapter 2 by partaking of the same things that we do. Through death, he destroys the one who has the power of death. That's the devil. He delivers all those who the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He helps the offspring of Abraham. He was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. God's working to really set us free from two things, to set us free from temptation because Satan is kind of that figure of temptation from the very beginning. So here, Jesus is described as coming to destroy Satan and to destroy death, right? The two things that really made things go wrong in the Garden of Eden. Satan brought temptation Adam yields to temptation, and when Adam sins, death enters into the world. Jesus comes to fix both of those things. He comes to destroy the works of the devil, right? He comes to defeat the tempter. He does that by being tempted himself and modeling what it looks like to find victory over temptation. And then he comes to defeat death by tasting death for everyone. He sets us free from death. Remember in Revelation, we talked about him holding the keys to death. And we can do anything and endure anything when we no longer fear dying. Man, like the fear of death, when that is actually removed from us, then we're capable of doing anything and enduring anything if we're not fearful of death. That sting of death is removed. So we still die, but it's removed through the hope of resurrection. So we see in chapter 2 here God's plan for man. God's plan for man, he created him to bring him glory. He was going to do that through creation by finding dominion over creation, everything being subjected to man. But man failed in that. So God has this great purpose, and we fail in that purpose. But God says, 
I'm not content with you failing. So I'm going to come fix the failure and basically put you back into a position where you can do what I designed for you to do. We're, we're, we're created to give him glory. We stopped giving him glory and God says, I'm not okay with that. So he sends his son to fix us so we can get back to our original purpose of creation and that was to bring him glory. Okay, so the implication here, my purpose for existing is to bring God glory with whatever life he chooses to give me. Whatever life he chooses to give me, my job is to bring him glory in the midst of that life. This past Friday, I go to this thing called Operation M46, and it's hosted at Trinity, and it's for dads in the community that want to basically learn how to be a better dad and how to help hold each other accountable to that. So we were meeting this past Friday, and um, we were watching a video by Tony Dungy, who's a Christian former football coach in the NFL. And back in 2005, 2006, his oldest son took his life, okay? And so he's, he's kind of describing what his son was going through at the time and, and some of the regret that he feels in um, not hugging him for the very last time that he saw him. And, and he's kind of documenting like just the sorrow that surrounded that whole event. He talks about giving the, he, he did the funeral. He performed the funeral for his oldest son. And, and he's kind of talking about that. And he's talking about the people who were saved physically through the organ donation of his son. And so he talked about like there were two people who received um, his corneas and now they could see and previously they were blind. And so he's kind of documenting like the letters that began to come to him through the midst of this sorrow and, and people that were writing to him and telling him I'm closer to my son now because of the way that you described the relationship with your son, uh, people that got saved at the funeral. And he kind of wrapped it up and he said, if you had come to me and said, or if God had come to me and said, uh, Tony, um, I have the ability to, to give physical life to people that are dying. I have the ability to save and give eternal life to people that are currently lost. Um, I, and, and he said, if, if God came to me and documented all the good things that he was gonna do through the death of my son and told me, all you have to do is say, take my son and I'm gonna do all these things, he said, I would have never chosen all the good that came from it. He said, I just, I just wouldn't. He said, I know myself. I love my son. I would, have never, I would have never allowed God to take him. I would have never allowed those circumstances to play out that way, even in light of all the good that I knew. He said, but I'm so thankful in knowing that in the midst of a tragedy where I lost my son and my son chose to, to do something to himself that caused you know, the whole family hurt and sorrow. He said, I'm so thankful that God used that situation to bring such great glory and honor to himself and to bring people into his kingdom. And ultimately it was because of how Tony Dungy responded to it, right? Like he got up and did the funeral. He got up and testified to God's sovereignty and goodness in the midst of a situation that just made no sense to him, right? Like he loved his son. His son was a believer. Like why would this happen to him, right? He's a great example of somebody who understands this concept that our purpose for existing is to bring God glory with whatever life he chooses to give me. Now, most of us would say that. Most of us would say, yeah, God has created me to give him glory with my life. But most of us want to choose the life that we get to give him glory with, right? Here's the thing. God doesn't promise us, nor does God say that you exist to get married to one person for your life. That's not your purpose of existence. God doesn't say, I created you to get married to one person for your life. 
And because he doesn't say that, that means some people won't get married. He doesn't say, I created you to get married and to have kids. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that I created you to get married and to have kids and to give God glory with that life. He doesn't tell us anything from a promise standpoint about the type of life that we get. He just says, your responsibility is to give me glory with whatever life I give to you. I mean, that radically transforms and changes how I view my circumstances if I can get behind that statement. Because now I don't get to sit back and say, why are you doing this, God? Why are you doing this, God? Or why are you not doing this, God? What I do is I sit back and say, man, God wants me to bring glory to him in this situation. Maybe that I would have not have chosen, but God chose it for me for some reason. And my response is to give him glory, to find ways to glorify him in the midst of what he has chosen to give to me. You were created by him and for him. And your job is to give him glory and to bring him glory in whatever life he chooses to give to you. Because all of our lives right here look different. We all make different amounts of money. We all have different types of jobs. Some of us are married. Some of us are not married. Some of us have kids. Some of us don't have kids. Some of us have lost kids. The consistent theme for all of us is that we're supposed to glorify God in all of those circumstances and not to wonder why is my circumstance different than somebody else's and when is God gonna change my circumstance to look like somebody else's. It's whatever circumstance God gives to us, we were created for the purpose of giving him glory in the midst of that life. Recognize your purpose for existence and don't drift from that responsibility to give him glory. Don't drift from giving him glory in the midst of the life that he chooses to give to you. Number three, seek help from the one who understands. Seek help from the one who understands. For our kids, Jesus can help us because he understands what we go through. says in verse 10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Does anybody have a translation that says something different than founder of their salvation? Anybody using a different translation than the ESV that says something different than founder? You could actually translate it to, to say champion. Um, you could actually translate it to say pioneer. Um, founder is an appropriate uh, translation as well, but we're not exactly sure which word to choose here. And so there's probably some elements of all three that maybe could go here. The idea of champion is, think back to David and Goliath and how they battled with the Philistines, right? They, they kind of stepped back and said, you know what? Instead of all of us dying here, why don't we just send out the best versus the best? And whatever the results of that is, everybody else will just go with it. Like we'll spare everybody else's life instead of everybody battling Let's go best on best and champion versus champion. Whoever wins, that's, that's kind of the result of the battle, right? The Philistines kind of went against that, right? And so Israel had to go sack the rest of them because they didn't want to go with it. But they sent David out against Goliath and David wins the battle. The picture here is we've got Jesus versus Satan. Jesus is the best man and the ultimate man, the champion of humanity who wins our salvation for us. We can also see him as the pioneer of our salvation, meaning that, that he kind of plows the way. He sets the course. He carves the path for our salvation. How does he do that? Well, he comes, he lowers himself below the angels to come be a human for a period of time. 
he subjects himself not to being a fallen human, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't take on sinful humanity, but he does become a man in a fallen world. Suffers, he's tempted, he dies, he tastes death for everyone. He becomes our propitiation, which ultimately means that he satisfies God's wrath for us. And because of all that, it allows him to become this merciful and faithful priest for us. Right? I like how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, um, Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation for your notes there. And then, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's ultimately what he does. Right? Like he comes to be the pioneer of our salvation. He comes to be what we were incapable of being. He comes as a man. He resists temptation. He's fully obedient to God, brings him glory with his life, tastes death so that we can be freed from death, defeats Satan so that we can be freed from temptation, so that we can become sons of God. It's that idea that Hebrews says he's carrying us to glory. He's bringing us to glory because we failed in our own efforts to be glorious to him. He's bringing us back to that state. He's sanctifying us. Right? It says, for he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one source. Number two, he's the helper in our struggles. He's the helper in our struggles. Look what Isaiah chapter 41 has to say. We're almost done. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. Again, this is why the Old Testament isn't rendered useless because of Jesus. It just gives meaning to it. It says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Right? That, that concept's found here in Hebrews 2, about the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Right? Like God's not done with us. He doesn't banish us in our failures. He says, you know what? You're supposed to give me glory. You, you chose not to. I'm going to bring you back so that you can. Fear not, for I am with you. Right? Like he's... he's 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 freed us from the fear of death. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He's working to help us. He's working for our sanctification. By becoming like us, he is able to relate to us on every level. He's like us in the most important ways. His sympathy is personal due to his own experiences. Man, I think one way that I'm able to be an effective principal at Trinity is that I was a teacher at Trinity. I was a middle school teacher at Trinity, and now I'm a principal of other teachers at Trinity. It makes me effective because I know exactly what it's like to be a teacher on a daily basis. I know exactly what the struggles look like. I know exactly what teachers want and desire to be changed because I felt those exact same things when I was a teacher. It allows me, because I've been there, to be an effective principal because I understand how the teachers feel in those settings. I remember the first, the first people that Lauren and I wanted to talk to when we, when we were going through our first miscarriage was Jesse and Cortland because, because we wanted to come talk to them because they had expressed what they had gone through and we wanted to connect with them because we understood now what they had already gone through and we needed the type of sympathy and help that we knew they could provide to us because they understood, they felt it, Right? Jesus comes and perseveres and lives like a human 
lives like a human and now knows exactly what it is that we feel. Knows exactly what it is that we feel and says, you know what? I, I get it. I can help you. I can sympathize with you because I've gone through the temptations that you go through. I've gone through the struggles that you go through. I've gone through the hardships that you've gone through. He knows the full force of temptation. And here's where some people say, well, well does he really get it? Because, because he couldn't sin, right? One commentator said, he knows the full force of temptation in a manner that we who have not withstood it to the end cannot know. The idea there is that Jesus understands temptation better than we do. He understands how hard it is to resist temptation because he doesn't give in. Right, like when we're tempted, we resist, we resist, we resist. And then there's this moment of relief when we give into it, right? It's like somebody who, who runs a marathon and then somebody who walks a part of it, right? Like they don't fully know what it means to run a marathon because they stopped a little bit along the way. They still finished it. They still experienced the marathon, but they found relief along the way. Whereas the one person ran and never stopped until the very end. Jesus resists temptation till the very end and never gets to walk a little bit, never gets to stop and catch his breath a little bit, right? So he fully understands temptation really better than we do. And he's better than angels because they're not qualified to help us in temptation. We talked last week, angels certainly play a role. They minister to us. God uses them to carry out his purposes, right? But Jesus helps us in ways that angels can't because they've never been tempted like us. They've never been like us. They can't offer that same type of help. So the implication for us here is that Jesus offers me the best help possible for overcoming temptation that I face each day. He offers the best help possible for overcoming temptation that I face each and every day. And let's don't just leave that up here like in a lofty sense. Like, what does that actually mean? Like, what does it mean that Jesus is our helper? Like, what, like, like how does he help us? Well, he's orchestrated everything. All the means of help flow through his understanding of what it's like to be us, right? So he gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us spiritually to resist temptation, right? So he, he's given us a supernatural tool to begin the process of sanctification. What does that mean? Well, that means when, when I'm in a situation where I'm feeling tempted, and I even recognize that my desires aren't fully fixed yet to where I want to say no to this, that we can pray to a Holy Spirit who lives inside of us and we can cry out, make me believe the things that the word is telling me to believe, right? Like we have this supernatural power inside of us to help fix us. We can certainly pray to a sympathetic high priest who understands. He's written his, new, he's written his words, particularly the New Testament, particularly for us based on his experiences here on earth, right? As a human, he understands what we go through, right? He goes back into heaven. The Holy Spirit is sent and begins to empower New Testament authors to finish out the Bible. And who's kind of the author of this? Jesus, he's the word, right? Jesus says, this is what needs to be written down. I get it. I understand what it's like to be human. We need to make sure that we write these things down if they're gonna persevere. And he surrounds us with Christian friends through the local church. He makes ways of escape in every, in every situation of temptation. He is our helper because he understands exactly what it's like to be tempted, and he knows exactly what we need to escape temptation. Understand the urgency of the message. We can't drift from this. It's the best message possible, right? Jesus brings the best message possible. We need to recognize that 
Our existence is tied to not drifting. We're supposed to bring glory and honor to God through his word. If we drift away, if we allow things to become more important, we are, we are, we are not existing like we're supposed to anymore, right? Like we were created to, to give glory to God. If other things become more important, man, I've lost my reason for living. My, my purpose for existence has shifted now. God chooses to give me some type of life and some lives are harder than others, right? Like Chris can testify, there are, there are Christians in Uganda who are living a different type of life than we are. But both of us have the same purpose for existence. We're supposed to glorify God whether we were born in Uganda or born in the United States. Whether our wife or husband stays with us for the whole, the whole duration of the marriage or they leave us in a portion of that marriage. Whether we get kids or don't get kids. Whether we have a great job or don't have a great job. Like we give glory to God in the life that he gives to us. Application standpoint, is your attention to the word proportional to your desire to not drift? What do I mean by that? I want you to step back because all of us in here would say, I don't want to drift. I don't want to drift. Would that be true based on the attention that you're giving to the word in your life right now? Like, would we see that proportionally to that? Like, would you say, man, on a scale of one to 10, I don't want to drift from the word at a 10. And then we said, okay, what's your attention to the word? That's eh, about a four. Well, the proportion's off them, right? Because what we're saying is you don't drift based on your commitment to the word, right? The priority that you give to the word in your life at home, the priority that you give to, to investing and, and ingesting the word through this local church. Is it proportional to what you would say your desire is not to drift? Number two, is your fight against temptation proportional to your desire to bring God glory? Everybody would sit here and say, I want my life to bring glory to God. Is your fight against temptation proportional to you saying that you have that desire? Because they're directly connected. I'm supposed to give glory to God. Temptation pulls me away from that purpose. Right? Like, like man was created to do this. We sinned in the garden, and now God's having to bring us back to glory. He's working to sanctify us, right? He's working to fix us. He's working to, to free us from temptation. He's our helper in the midst of temptation. Is your fight against temptation proportional to your desire to bring God glory? Then our family worship questions, as I said, read Hebrews chapter three as a family and then discuss some of the clear things in this chapter and what questions you might have. And we'll come prepared to learn more next week. Let's pray together. And Tyson's gonna come and lead us in one more song. God, I thank you for the truths that are found here in chapter two. Lord, I know that there's a lot more truths that we didn't even mine out this morning. And God, I thank you that that affords us the opportunity to go back and study more on our own because um, we certainly didn't exhaust chapter two. But God, I'm thankful for the things that we did pull out this morning. Um, God, I'm thankful that we can see the urgency of, of the gospel message that you have sent Jesus to, to be the ultimate message, the ultimate revelation of who you are. And God, we're so thankful that you sent Jesus to fix our inabilities to bring you glory because of our sin, that you sent Jesus to to be lower than the angels for a period of time, to, to suffer in our place, to resist temptation in our place, to be our propitiation. God, we're thankful that, that Jesus is now set up as a, as a faithful and merciful high priest. 
God, I know in our sinfulness, when we try to be both merciful and faithful, that's a hard combination to have. But God, we're thankful that you can be right, you can be just and merciful at the same time because of Jesus' experiences here. God, I pray that we would be reminded as we leave today what our purpose in existing is. The reason that you keep giving us breath in our lungs is that we have a job to do, and that's to bring you glory. God, help us to find contentment in whatever life it is that you're choosing to give to us right now. God, I know there's many times where I'm like Tony Dungy. I I would choose a different thing. Even if you told me how good you were going to be, I would probably choose different things for my life. God, I'm thankful that you don't give us that choice, that you know exactly what is best for us. God, I pray that we would embrace whatever life, whatever situation, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in right now. God, help us to to seek to, to show the love and the value that we see in you in those circumstances. That people around us would see the trust and the faith that we have in you and that it would bring people to you. God, that's the type of glory that you desire and God, help us to, to show that and reflect that type of glory. Lord, give us wisdom as we, as we lead today. Help us to, to look at the commitment that we're making to the word in our life. Is it proportional to our desire not to drift away? Are we yielding to that warning? God, help us to look and remember that, that our, our job is to bring you glory and, and to not yield to temptation. Are we fighting temptation in such a way where we're being able to, to bring the maximum amount of glory to you? Help us to meditate on those things even as we sing today before we leave, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.